Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Deputy Chief Economist here at Aberdeen. And today we're talking about China's post-COVID reopening. Why the sudden change in policy? How bad was the initial economic and health hit? But then how strong will the rebound be domestically and indeed globally as China transitions to endemic living? So it's a big and fast-moving topic, which is very much a crucial macro and market driver in 2023. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Bob Gilhui, our senior EM economist and resident China expert. So Bob, let's start with why China transitioned so quickly from its strict zero COVID policy uh, to an easing of essentially all restrictions in, in late November, early December. What drove that dramatic policy pivot? Yeah, th- thanks, Paul. I mean, I guess we can't really probably pin it, pin the decision to reopen on on any one specific factor, but the three things really stand out to me. Uh, first of all, is it getting increasingly difficult to contain uh, the latest Omicron variants that were going around China? Uh, given their exceptionally high transmissibility, were a large number of provinces registering outbreaks. And really, if we were going to see the authorities trying to kind of reduce cases number back down to kind of zero, that probably would have necessitated you know, very harsh, prolonged lockdowns across many different uh, cities, cities and provinces. Secondly, the cost to local governments of containment was clearly rising. Uh, some provinces were spending probably twice in what they spent uh, uh, in, in 2022 as they did in the previous two years, um, while lockdowns, weak growth and the struggling property sector were all squeezing revenues uh, on the other side of the fiscal ledgers. I think politics here was also important. We had passed the 20th Party Congress uh, with President Xi securing his unprecedented third term. Uh, perhaps more significantly, though, the, the eruption of anti-lockdown, anti-communist party protests was the kind of the most visible sign of public discontent with the government's policies that we'd seen basically in the past 30 years. And did we misunderstand quite how responsive Chinese policymakers were going to be to those street protests? It strikes me that that was the, the misreading that many in the West made that that somehow the political system would not change um, direction in light of, of of changes in public opinion was that a crucial kind of misunderstanding? Do you think? Yeah, I think that was I think that was probably part of it. But I I probably say the kind of surprise here was maybe a little bit broader than just the just the public protests. I mean, we do seem to have had effectively, you know, an abrupt change in I guess the willingness to trade off public health against these political considerations uh, and growth. I think kind of what was surprising here was it's also, you know, clearly Omicron was less dangerous and harder to contain. We knew that at the start of 2022, but that doesn't mean it was necessarily undangerous for kind of the under-vaccinated elderly population, as the experience in Hong Kong had, had demonstrated uh, before. I think that implied that change policy would only really happen after vaccination rates have been raised and maybe healthcare in rural areas had also been uh, improved. The Communist Party, I guess, had also just spent so long emphasising the dangers of COVID with communications, you know, drawing a very stark contrast to those in the West, which had been kind of 
relatively costly in terms of lives. I guess we thought there was just kind of less risk tolerance there as well in terms of the kind of public health uh, outcome. And I guess the kind of final move away from zero COVID was also in many ways a kind of de facto abandonment rather than a kind of clearly thought through, well-communicated policy change that kind of had followed in any way a roadmap towards uh, moving towards uh, endemic living. Indeed, you know, I think when people look back on this, the question is going to be, you know, is, is one more of the degree and relativity of this, maybe this kind of policy mistake, rather than kind of whether one was made made at all. So so do we have a good handle on how severe the, the initial COVID reopening wave has been and indeed how big the the initial macroeconomic hit was as well? Well, I guess we can't really be 100% sure given testing was effectively, you know, completely abandoned. There's also quite a lot of doubts about the death numbers too. Uh, the bar seems to have been set very high for recording uh, deaths as, as related to COVID uh, within China. But I think the picture we're getting from unofficial and official surveys and estimates is really kind of one of an exceptionally rapid COVID wave that may have peaked towards the end of December uh, and then eased notably through January. I mean, I won't, won't go through like all the all the facts and figures here, but China's National Health Commission reported that visits to our termed fever clinics peaked a bit under 3 million on December 23rd. That's back down below half a million. Uh, internet search data also paint a picture of certainly one of uh, fading concern by households uh, and survey data. We know we had research from Gavacal reporting that 80% of respondents to one of their recent surveys had said they'd already had COVID. Now, that seems exceptionally rapid by the standards of other countries reopening. But, you know, our colleagues on the ground in China kind of back up this picture uh, of an exceptionally uh, fast wave with most people uh, they know having had a COVID. Yeah, so we're operating in a data vacuum, but this kind of anecdata very much confirms the idea of an extremely rapid spread, which I suppose is what we should expect in a in a population with that didn't have natural immunity, which was faced with this extremely um, mm-hmm. transmissible variant of the virus. But of course, Bob, precisely because the spread has been incredibly rapid, it seems like the economy has moved through that deep initial growth hit into its rebound stage pretty quickly. So what are you seeing and, and tracking in terms of the macro improvement now that we're kind of more into the endemic living phase? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You know, um, we can sort of debate about whether Chinese GDP really did contract or not in Q4, but that kind of feels like ancient news now. Markets are definitely kind of looking forward um, the lack of any attempt to really flatten the curve and take pressure off the healthcare system, you know, combined with households making the most of their newfound freedoms, does seem to have generated a very rapid rebound. One that we actually think believe kind of began in in December. Uh, you know, some of the indicators show, you know, for example, retail sales volumes. We think they rose about two and a half percent month on month uh, in December. That's painting a picture of kind of already recovery gathering pace. That said, soft and high frequency data also confirms a kind of ongoing bounce, one that looks like it's accelerated through to January too. So we just got China's January NBS non-manufacturing PMI out this morning, which jumped from 42 uh, to 54, uh, with expectations balance hitting 
almost 65, which is the highest reading we've seen there since uh, 2012. Um, high frequency data for Lunar New Year uh, also backs up the view of a very rapid recovery too. Um, Ministry of Culture and Tourism reported that domestic visits were almost about 90% of pre-pandemic levels. Uh, other kind of indicators, such as the Baidu Migration Index, which is a bit akin to kind of uh, Google Maps, people are more familiar with that, actually points to potentially stronger intercity travel uh, this year than we saw in 2019. Uh, and the China Cuisine Association also reporting that catering may have rebounded uh, to levels slightly above that seen in 2019. So really, uh, Chinese households do seem to be kind of making the most of being this opportunity to kind of visit friends and family that they haven't seen for in some cases for several years now. And then, Bob, you've just updated your your China GDP forecast for 2023 as a whole. Indeed, um, on the Recession Institute, we've, we've just done a global forecast refresh. China was a, a, a big moving part. Um, do you want to explain what you you are now forecasting for Chinese GDP in 2023 as a whole? Yeah, we've really had a big, big upward revision. We're now a bit above consensus, uh, pencing in around about 5.5%. Uh, GDP growth for 2023 consensus is still around about about 5.1. Um, our view is it's really going to be a consumption and services driven uh, rebound. You know, some commentators have been flagging a very exceptional rise uh, in bank deposits and the potential for quote unquote revenge consumption, which I believe is probably a dish uh, best served hot in this case. Uh, but we don't really need to kind of like appeal to this revenge consumption idea. Uh, but it's a bit of a thought experiment, just simply returning the savings rate or equivalently the consumption rate out of disposable income back to prior norms. You know, that should be enough to drive nominal consumption growth uh, to rise by about 14% in 2023 versus 2022. And if households were to tap what we estimate to be a roughly 4.2 trillion worth of RMB, uh, which is about 3.7% of GDP that they've saved out of disposable income since the start of the pandemic, that could potentially push nominal consumption growth closer to 20%. Now, I would say that, you know, we do think that the the, the distribution is of savings is skewed towards higher uh, earnings, earners, which kind of tempers this upside risk, as does the potential for kind of stronger services inflation to kind of curtail what's really going on in the real side of the economy. And I guess spending could be leaking abroad uh, more than we expect via tourism uh, uh, too. So that's the kind of the, the one, one of the reasons we're, we're very kind of confident about the consumption rebound, plus that very V-shaped recovery we were discussing, the kind of high frequency uh, data too. Now, I guess, you know, we do still expect consumption to be supporting the goods and manufacturing side of the economy uh, to, to some extent, uh, but it's less clear, I think, that there's really like a large pent-up demand uh, for goods. And we also expect the external environment to worsen as the US recession saps export demand around the middle of the year. So on that kind of manufacturing, secondary industry side of things, we're a bit less confident, but maybe some sort of near-term momentum should really help cement China's recovery for the first half of this year, at least. One of the features of the reopening rebound phase in, in other economies has, um, of course, been that they've been inflationary. Demand has returned more rapidly than supply, and we are now living with, with some of those inflationary consequences. How do you think about inflationary dynamics in China during the reopening then? Yeah, I think there's probably a few 
key differences here. One is, you know, China's clearly coming from a position of kind of excess slack. Growth was exceptionally weak uh, in 2022. I think having a, a, a desynchronized timing with the rest of the world will also help in terms of other economies coming out of lockdown, moving to endemic living. This was kind of a period of quite synchronized, strong growth, still strong demand for uh, for goods as well, which had really put a big stress on, on global supply chains. In contrast, now the picture for global supply chains is one of, of marked improvement. We do think that the kind of consumption is rotating away from goods and more towards services in developed markets too. Again, kind of speeding up that global supply chain uh, recovery. So we're not really too worried, I guess, about the kind of uh, goods prices surprising uh, on the upside for China. I think a bit of an uncertainty here is kind of around how strong the services inflation will be. And I think the moderating goods inflation combined with you know, stronger than normal core inflation is going to push up uh, inflation in China in 2023. But on the other hand, you know, one of the difficulties uh, judging the current uh, outlook for the world economy is penciling in a US recession implies a big downward shock potentially coming through oil and other commodities uh, at some point too. So though that should net off uh, and keep actually headline inflation kind of relatively modest, even if we do get some some core services inflation kind of bubbling underneath the surface uh, in China. Yeah, so divergent global uh, growth trends, an important driver of what happens in Chinese price uh developments as well. Um, but you, you've got a forecast of, of 5.5% GDP growth for China this year, the strongest growing major economy. It's above consensus. Perhaps the risks lie to the upside as well. Um, what do we think then about the supposed pro-growth pivot in other areas of Chinese policy, for example, um, in the housing sector? Is there going to mm-hmm. be appetite to to provide infrastructure stimulus, uh, credit support, revise the housing sector. How do you think about those issues? Yeah, I mean, you're right. The authorities have been striking a fairly pro-growth, kind of open for business tone uh, more recently. But I find it actually quite hard to believe that they're really going to keep their foot on the gas as the economy uh, rebounds. You know, I mentioned it a bit earlier. Local authorities got some pretty large fiscal holes uh, to fill. Um, the weakness in the property market, you know, pulled down land sales, typically a notable source uh, of revenue. I think all of this implies actually they're more likely to tone down some of their infrastructure spending. And that's going to net off some of the recovery uh, in private construction as the real estate market kind of picks up and gets going to uh, probably say the rhetoric on policy often seems a little bit stronger than the actual kind of details that are coming out in terms of the policy announcements too. Uh, the pivot on real estate, I think, should be good for kind of solvency for the developers, uh, should be good as well for ensuring home buyers actually receive completed projects and completed houses, which is clearly crucial for getting the kind of pipeline uh, of activity going on the real estate sector again. But that still implies to me, you know, the implications for activity are a little bit uh, more modest. Last year's drop in new starts was so sudden um, I think that's still likely to weigh on investment over the course of this year, given the lags between effectively kind of breaking new ground uh, on building projects and then actually kind of the investment flow that's associated uh, with it until you hit project uh, completion. 
Uh, and then, you know, more generally, I think the authorities are going to be quite wary of losing progress made to date on de-risking the economy, de-risking the financial system, and also de-risking uh, the real estate sector. I mean, the latter, I think, has become even more of a focus given the long-run challenges here that China faces from demographics. You know, one of the numbers that came out with the Q4 GDP release is that China's population fell for the first time uh, in 2022. And while urbanization upgrading should be you know, supporting uh, new builds and still providing some, some impetus to the property market, the accelerating fall in population is going to bite at some point. I mean, the UN expects China's population to fall by a staggering 655 million by the end of the century. So the risks of a kind of property overhang uh, is clear. Still think they've got a bit of time before this becomes a real issue. But by the time we get to sort of 2040, this could be a very difficult challenge for the policymakers. And another reason to think you don't want to lose sight of kind of de-risking uh, the economy and kind of returning to the boom-bust cycles that we've seen so many so many times around kind of credit uh, in China. Yeah, so in a way that the pro-growth pivot was dropping zero COVID. So why uh, add to that with sort of kind of old-fashioned infrastructure splurges or undoing good work um, that, that started in terms of China's multi-year real estate adjustment? Well, let's think then about the rest of the world, how China reopening impacts or can transmit to, to growth and inflation elsewhere. The positive, as it were, channels, Bob, um, is it all a tourism story or is China going to be demanding a lot of um, commodities and global goods uh, from the rest of the world as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you mentioned tourism there. And I think more generally, there's quite a lot of reasons to think that the kind of the unique features of China's reopening means that kind of normal channels that you'd think of in terms of spillovers from China's growth to the west of the world don't quite uh, operate as, as they might do in kind of slightly more normal times. Um, first of all, composition of growth in this recovery uh, should likely be much less import intensive. You know, input output tables would suggest that consumption is around about kind of two thirds of the import intensity of investment, uh, and that could be even lower if you know services is a large share of that kind of consumption rebound, which is you know what we expect. Um, clearly, the return of Chinese tourism from you know effectively zero uh, is a fairly good positive sudden boost for many countries. Thailand, I think, really stands out here, but Malaysian GDP also should get a, a moderate boost as a result too. Um, for other countries, though, the return of Chinese tourists is probably welcome from an activities perspective, but we need to put it into a bit more context. Uh, in APAC, countries are normalising towards tourism deficits, and that process still has some way to go. So while kind of China's 170-odd million tourists uh, will be kind of welcome from the money they bring. Uh, they're potentially also putting kind of upward pressure on services inflation, which for some countries might be just running a little bit kind of uncomfortably too hot, complicating the job of central banks and, you know, potentially even meaning slightly higher higher rates or higher for longer uh, to make, keep, uh, to get inflation back to kind of target, uh, target consistent, consistent rates. I mean, we mentioned the kind of uh, commodities and, channel a little bit uh, before. I think one of the big questions whether the oil markets are really factoring in the return of both uh, international and domestic travel uh, in China. 
before the pivot away from zero COVID, domestic travel in China was only running around about a quarter of the pre-pandemic uh, norms as people were you know, rightly concerned that they'd be effectively kind of stuck in quarantine if they went to other parts uh, of the country. Uh, so, you know, that kind of domestic travel rebound alone could be a fairly big uh, kind of driver of marginal oil demand and raises kind of more questions about whether, you know, oil will or won't be uh, as much of a kind of disinflationary force uh, over the coming years. Yeah, I think the the inflationary consequences of Chinese reopening are, are crucial because there are these clear positives, especially through tourism channels for parts of the world, Southeast Asia, perhaps through commodities demand into, into Latin America. But for those parts of the global economy where the issue is overheating and an excess of demand over supply, the addition of a whole new source of demand into the global economy, a kind of a reopened China unleashed Chinese consumer, is, um, is not a positive. And in a way, rather than cancelling out or preventing our long-standing US recession call, it even plays into it by adding to to over over demand issues. So that's why I very much think of it as it's not like the post-financial crisis where Chinese stimulus was a tide that lifted all boats. Instead, it's a, a source of divergence in the global economy for 2023. But I want to close then on a thought about policy swings in China in an opaque political system. And and the COVID policy pivot is an example of this, albeit one that's probably quite, as we've discussed, a big big boon for domestic growth. But there have been others around, around education, technology, perhaps in the future, they'll be around geostrategic policy that could introduce significant volatility into markets. So is policy risk a growing risk in China, especially in in the context of Xi's cemented central power? Yes, I I think it is. I mean, I think, you know, I think you you put it very well. It's the opacity of the system just makes uh, it very difficult to know, I guess, whether policies are durable and stable or whether they're actually at risk of suddenly becoming a focal point for the government, dramatically changing the kind of business uh, environment there. I mean, in terms of the kind of the authoritarian system or Chinese political system more broadly, you know, there's a few factors there that kind of probably feed into this sudden policy change risk. Uh, there's, I guess there's no equivalent of kind of think tanks or open discourse on the kind of pros and cons of policy, which can which investors or others can use to help kind of guide expectations. Legal system doesn't probably create the kind of grit that's in the Western uh, Western countries that kind of might slow down policy changes. Uh, and you know, authoritarian systems more generally kind of have a tendency for some power consolidation. You know, putting more of the decision making uh, at the top perhaps, depending on the system, skewing the information flow to the top two. Uh, and that could potentially contribute to you know, policy being maintained for longer than it should have otherwise been and then lurching uh, in a new direction. And there isn't really much sign, I think, within China that there's going to be any fundamental change to the Chinese political system. If anything, you know, power has become more concentrated and these risks are arguably uh, higher than they, they used to be, say, five, ten years ago. I mean, I guess kind of what does this mean? Well, for investors, it certainly makes the job 
harder, maybe relying slightly more on kind of rumors and conjecture than they would uh, be otherwise. And I think that contributes to fairly violent swings uh, in sentiment with or without policy changes uh, to, to back them up. And you pair the uh, opacity of the Chinese system with rapidly changing economy, added on with global geopolitical tensions, you know, we should effectively be thinking this as needing to kind of be pushing up on the risk premium of Chinese uh, assets. Now, to put it in kind of more layman's terms, you know, there's good reason to kind of expect the unexpected uh, within China as an ongoing kind of structural feature. Brilliant. Well, Bob well put, and thank you for your insights. And thank you to you for listening to Macrobytes. As ever, please like and subscribe on your podcast platform. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication, and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.